Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Steve Hayes, joined today by David French and Jonah Goldberg. We are Sarah Iskerless uh, today as we record, um, so we will be a lot less smart and um, a lot less provocative. First thing I want to talk about is GDP numbers and the economy. Um, we received numbers yesterday, Thursday, that the economy is growing at a paltry 1.4%, down from 6.9%. Shrank by 1.4. Shrank by Shrank by one point. Shrank by 1.4. Um, the inflation rate is eight and a half percent. This is not an economy that uh, is likely to see a lot of Democrats get elected in 2022. Something we already knew, but I think this drives it home even more and has Democratic strategists and Democratic elected office holders panicking. How much blame does Joe Biden deserve for the current state of the economy? David? Well, you know, we're, we're talking about, I, I would say, a moderate to it's certainly not insignificant level of blame. If you're talking about inflation, um, you know, we were talking in the Green Marine beforehand that we've seen estimates that between 2 and 4% of inflation is due to the last big burst of spending. Um, so that last big burst of spending did make a difference. Uh, I, I'm never one who sort of lays the entire economy at a president's feet. Um, there are business cycles. There are world events like uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that uh, obviously impact this. Uh, but the last thing we needed after an enormous blast of spending during the height of the pandemic was another enormous blast of spending um, in the last year. And they wanted to do much more than that. A lot more than that. And and at this point, it's now, you know, essentially received conventional wisdom that this enormous amount of spending had this effect. You know, I, we've mentioned it before on this podcast, I believe. But, you know, there's this fascinating conversation between Ezra Klein and Larry, Sum, uh, Larry Summers where uh, Ezra says, you know, in many ways, we kind of got what we wanted, which was running the economy hot, running hot with public spending. And we ended up with this inflation. And, and look, the inflation is big enough to where it's swallowing um, any growth in income uh, so that people are feeling, even if they have a job and even if they, which, you know, we, we have a, a pretty robust employment situation, but you feel like you're losing ground because you're actually, you actually are losing ground. And then you combine this with the low growth numbers and you've kind of got the, this combination of stagflation, this low growth plus high inflation, which was the hallmark of some of the worst days of the 1970s. And that's just a terrible, I mean, it, you don't even have to be any kind of political observer at all to note that that's just terrible for the party in power when that happens. Yeah, Jonah, I mean, look, let, let's be fair. It was going to be difficult to manage our way out of the, the pandemic, uh, the economic crunch that the pandemic brought 
to the country. So we shouldn't, you know, and, and it's true that uh, economists of, of a wide ideological variety suggested that the economy would need stimulus, that some of the emergency uh, programs that uh, were launched were necessary. You heard this from Republicans in the latter stages of the Trump administration, from Democrats as Biden came into office. Even our, our libertarian friends were in favor of much more government than our libertarian friends are, are typically in favor of. So you have to look at it in that context. At the same time, the Biden White House was on record, even as others, including Democrats, uh, prominent left-leaning economists, were sounding alarms about inflation. The Biden White House was downplaying and even dismissing them. Larry Summers was one of those. Um, Jason Furman, who ran the uh, Council on Economic Advisors under President Obama, was another. I just want to read a few headlines from over the course of 2021. Um, February, Yellen, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, downplays inflation, inflation fears amid Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. Um, are we in, in a rerun of that 70s show talking about in, inflation? That's from July. Biden downplays inflation fears ahead of infrastructure bill vote. That's also from July of 2021. And you can go even further up to, to December 2021 from the new or from from Bloomberg. Biden team seeks to downplay inflation data ahead of release. Pretty consistently throughout 2021, we were told by the Biden White House that inflation would be transitory, that it was uh, nothing to worry about, that we really needed this spending. By any objective measure, they were just flat out wrong, weren't they? And if they were, why shouldn't he shoulder a ton of blame for this? Yeah, so uh, I think we got to pull a bunch of things apart. Politically, this is his bed. He's going to lie in it. I, I mean, I, it, is, it is difficult to think of a president in our lifetime who just has everything break the wrong way for him on everything. Mm -hmm. And some of it is he deserves overwhelming blame for Afghanistan, mm -hmm. right? Some of it he deserves some blame for. And, um, and this is one of these things. I think part of the problem is you're absolutely right. As a messaging thing, he owns it, right? This is obviously the inflation part of it. Um, I think part of what, what the explanation would happen here is that they basically were replaying their playbook from the Obama years, which was flood the zone with money and in response to the financial crisis. Uh, people said you're going to get inflation. Republicans were wrong about their war, their calls for their warnings of inflation. Let's just do it again. So it's not the 70s show. It's the Obama show in a lot of ways. And the problem is, is that the economic circumstances are completely different in the sense that um, you had people locked away from like locked in their homes or prevented from going to bars and restaurants and vacations and doing fun things for almost two years. So the amount of pent up demand was enormous and you were paying people an enormous amount of money not to work. 
and you put those things together and you got, you know, uh, plus the incredible supply chain problems, which are not entirely Biden's fault, obviously, um, not even mostly Biden's fault. Um, but you put them all together and you think that you're not going to get inflation. It turns out that you're wrong. Um, I don't think I think inflation is a real problem. I don't think the economy is in as bad shape as people are claiming it is based upon this contraction. Um, there's a lot of misreporting about how this works. I don't want to set, you know, uh, Scott Lincecum's ears aflame, but like even the New York times yesterday reported that because there were too many, essentially too many imports, um, lowered our GDP, which is a very MAGA Trumpy version of economics. And it's just not what any economics textbook says. Um, imports are basically neutral for, uh, for GDP. And because people are bringing in stuff, it actually generates economic activity. The problem was, is that as a statistical matter, our net exports were lower because demand worldwide is lower. Mm -hmm. And it's not Joe Biden's fault that, you know, Europe is buying fewer of our widgets right now. Um, the world is going through an energy shock and all of these things. The problem for Biden on this and a thousand other issues, and we're going to talk about student loans in a second, is that they sound they're 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 never in doubt, but so often in error. <laughs> they were sure that there was going to be no inflation, right? They they made fun of people who said there was going to be inflation, and you can't keep coming out of you know the Jen Psaki's whole mode is to make fun of people asking reasonable questions that end up reflecting administration policy six weeks later. Right. And so messaging wise, they're just, they're always wrong footed. And at this point, it doesn't matter how much blame they get. Like on immigration stuff, they're every, on every issue I can think of, they're caught between what their base minimally requires to show up at all in the midterms and what the median persuadable middle of the road voter would need to hear to possibly vote for a Democrat in, in 2022. And if you please one side, the other side will punish you and vice versa. And, and the economic stuff is just part of that broader equation. Um, and, and so he deserves it on the messaging, how much factually he deserves blame for every economic problem we have is a perfectly reasonable thing to debate, but I don't have a great answer for it. But isn't that, I mean, if, if you're assigning blame, I would say that one of the, the, the main reasons to assign blame to Joe Biden, I, and I, I agree with all of your stipulations about how much of this is just a, the, the circumstances, but he is enthralled to the liberal base of the Democratic Party. His White House, uh, you know, had a difficult, I think, assignment, a difficult job coming in to manage the, these different factions of the Democratic Party, the centrists on the one hand with slim majorities in both the House and the Senate and the, the progressives who are the where the center of gravity in the Democratic Party is today. And, you know, while they, they it was a difficult job, it was always going to be a difficult job. They seem to again and again and again, I think in part because of the, the influence of prominent White House staffers come down on the side of the progressives. And if you think back to the arguments that we were hearing from the White House, again, echoing the case that was being made by the progressives, they wanted far more orders of magnitude more spending than they were able to get. And if you think about 
what the, the potentially catastrophic effects of three times the spending uh, might have had on the economy and uh, driving inflation in particular. You could make an argument that the centrist really saved him from being in a much worse position. The New York Times, speaking of the Times, reported today, quote, some economists estimate that the Democrats' $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan added between two and four percentage points to the U.S. inflation rate. Imagine if they had gotten everything they wanted in the additional spending measures. Uh, Don't, again, I'm not uh, stipulating that this is a difficult thing. That's Joe, that's on Joe Biden, isn't it? He was pushing for more. Sure, sure. Sure. And, you know, and just to, just to sort of uh, rewind the record also with, with us, we were saying for a long time, you know, (laughs) fiscal conservatism isn't invalid just because both parties seem to have abandoned it. (laughs) The, the laws of economics still apply. And, you know, there was this image that we talked about that, that Noah Smith had used that I thought was just really powerful about how much money had been spent in the Obama years and the Trump years. I mean, just an enormous sum of money had been spent. And it was like walking down uh, an infinite quarter with an invisible pit that you were going to fall into high inflation at some point. It was it was just happening. And with each step you were taking and spending money, more money, you were stake, you were taking a step closer to that pit that was somewhere out there. And and the thing that got me and gets me about the Biden administration, it was again, as Jen was saying, it's just sort of scoffing at this idea that the the pit exists. And this, and then also this kind of um idea that just because the American people have politically moved on from an issue. You know, they've politically moved on from the idea of fiscal responsibility. And you're kind of sneered at at the very idea that you're still, you know, to use the Jonahism, uh, banging your spoon on your high chair over an issue that because the American people have moved on, it, well, it's just not, oh, we, you know, why are you talking about this? But what we're experiencing right now, I think, should be, revising a whole lot of people's, uh, on right and left, revising a whole lot of people's worldviews about what American political or what American politics should look like and what um, government programs should be looking like in the near and medium term future. Um, this whole idea of that fiscal conservatism is just dead and we're all fiscal liberals. And the question then is whether it's social conservative or socially liberal at the same time. Um, I, you know, reality has intruded on that one, gentlemen. Yeah, I mean, perhaps not surprisingly, the progressives don't seem to be taking that message, David. They don't, <laughs> what? They don't seem what? To, be, to be seeing it the same way you are. Uh, Jonah, you mentioned um, discussion of, uh, or the debate over uh, forgiving college loans. And, you know, you've seen over the past several weeks uh, progressives led by Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and others really pushing the idea. I mean, cancel all debt. That's the that's the sort of Twitter hashtag. This is what Elizabeth Warren is is arguing for. This is what Bernie Sanders is arguing for. Chuck Schumer has gotten behind at least a version of that. Joe Biden has signaled that he's that it's something he's he's interested in, something he's looking at. He said in a in a meeting with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus this week. Um, is there any merit 
to the idea that all college debt should be forgiven. Um, what would the economic consequences be if if he were to do that, Jonah? And uh, is this is this something that you see could ha- possibly happen? So there is zero merit to eliminating all college debt, right? That's $1.7 trillion. Um, that would be, in effect, a giveaway to a narrow slice of a, essentially a Democratic coalition. Um, it would have profound moral hazard problems. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, Biden did say, you know, we're not going to do $50,000 as, as if that was like marked him as the reasonable guy. Um, but, uh, uh, there is an argument. I don't agree with it per se, but there was an argument at the beginning. Mary, Mary, Mary Beth Akers, who was, whose name I got to remember how to pronounce was a, wrote a book on student loans, um, on that, on student debt. Um, and she made this point at the beginning of the pandemic. She was like, look, most people who are in danger of defaulting on their student debt owe less than $5,000. And those are the people who are really on the, on the edge of poverty and, um, and forgiving a small amount at the beginning of the pandemic might make some sense. I'm not saying I agree with that, but like that, that's a argument that sounds in the realm of the reasonable. We did something else reasonable instead as we, we did a moratorium on all student debt payments essentially which, you know, probably adds up to quite a bit by now because it's still going on. Um, I believe $100 million um, in lost payments. Uh, yeah. According to the no, it's real money. The Cato $100 million or $100 billion? So, Sorry, $100 billion. What did I say? $100 million. $100 million. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's $100 billion here, $100 billion there. You start <laughs> talking about real money. And, um, uh, but, most people, most people don't have student debt because most people don't go to college. And um, uh, the the more the only moral I've had this debate because I tweeted about this last night. I've had this argument with a bunch of people now. Um, the only moral argument. Let me put it this way. I tweeted last. I tweeted the other night um, that there's no moral case for forgiving student loan debt that isn't a thousand times or a hundred times stronger for uh, canceling the debt for auto loans of non-luxury vehicles for sort of middle-class people and below, right? You're talking about hardworking people who need their cars to work. It would, it would help some students, right? It would help some people with student debt because all, you know, debt is debt. Um, but it also help a lot of working class people who don't have college degrees. And the one response I got back from people was that has any credibility to it is that we encourage everybody in this country to go to college. We told them that they go to college, um, that it'll be worth it. And now they're saddled with all this debt. Well, first, again, most people who just have debts for undergraduate um, tuition are not saddled with massive debt. They have debt that is it is manageable. The really massive debt loads go to people who went to graduate school. Mm. And if you went to graduate school and you acquired hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and we're talking by definition college-educated people, you kind of own some of your choices. <laughs> and some of it has to do with the incentive structure that is set up by public school systems in this country and 
and and municipal governments and, and other layers of government that that incentivize you to go get a graduate degree. So you come back and you come back for a higher salary. You did a cost benefit analysis. That's a problem with the system. If you went and got a, a, a PhD in um, Aramaic poetry <clears throat> and now you're bummed that you can't pay it off because you paid cash for your your degree. That's on you. The idea that some working class is, uh, you know, apprentice plumber should pay off your debt makes no moral sense whatsoever. And I think the problem that the Democratic Party has gotten itself, if this gets into the thing with Biden being enthralled to the base, is the Democratic Party is largely in terms of its influencers, not its actual voters, but its influencers, the party of 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 higher education. Broadly speaking, it's people with graduate degrees. It's people who come from college towns. It's people who who take their lead um, uh, on what they think from that sort of sector of the culture. And um, the idea that a congresswoman who has student debt should have it forgiven <laughs> is so <laughs> grotesque to me. Right. Six figure income. The second Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez leaves government or Elon Omar, or any of these people who are out there saying I have student debt and it's outrageous. They are going to make enough money in six months to pay off all of their student debts. And is there is there a single person in the world who went to law school and was told, OK, here's the deal. You're going to acquire a bunch of student debt, but then you're going to become a congressperson. And you're going to be a congressperson, become famous and powerful for a while. And then when you stop being a congressperson, you'll either become a senator or a mayor or a governor, or you'll go into the private sector and make seven figures almost overnight. So therefore, the federal government should cancel all your debt. It just makes no sense. David, can you steel man this for us a little bit? I mean, if you're Elizabeth Warren, why would you do this? Doesn't it, just in political terms, it would seem to alienate many of the same voters that Democrats seem to have had the most difficulty keeping white working class voters and others over the past several years. What's the what's the rationale for doing this? I mean, this is this is this a sort of a play to the online left? Is this a play to the Democratic voters most likely to go out and, and vote in 2022 to stem their losses? Or is this just a an Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders ideological? I've always wanted to do this, so I'm now making the argument. Um, okay, so steel manning this, I would say that what you're talking about is a combination of a philosophy and a perceived reality. And the philosophy would be that, quite frankly, college shouldn't be a financial burden. Since college is such an engine of upward mobility in this, in this um, country, that making it such a profound financial burden on people is uh, an impediment, an obstacle to that opportunity in our country. And so, therefore, the cancellation of student debt removes the financial burden of college, empowers an opportunity, uh, you know, an opportunity society, although that's not exactly the words they'd use. That sounds more <laughs> conservative. But philosophically, if college is a, is a, 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 an, is the engine of upward mobility. Why are we putting such severe sort of breaks, financial breaks on that upward mobility? Um, practically, again, you're talking about politicians taking care of their base. I mean, this is old school politics to take care of your base. And so um, if you're talking, you know, the combination of philosophy and, and practical politics, I think can in some ways make this seem compelling to them, even though I think as on a macro basis, it's based in 
rooted in bad philosophy and bad politics. Um, look, if you're going to talk about granting an economic benefit, um, using the power of the government to grant a substantial economic benefit to a community, the community of college-educated people in this country is probably the least deprived, <laughs> most powerful, and most economically ultimately advantaged community, not just in America, but if it is in America, then it is in the world. So, you know, what if you have a college degree, if you're sitting there with a college degree, even if you're struggling early on to pay your bills, you are set up in the United States of America. I mean, you're so set up that it's just an enormous, that an enormous amount of time, energy, and effort is spent trying to get more people to college because we know that that sets you up to do well in this country. And the other thing is, you know, this constant throwing of money, of state money at these educational institutions isn't limiting the cost of the education. It's just shifting the cost of the education. It's, yeah. shif it's shifting it to, and, and as Jonah said, a lot of non-college educated people who have less opportunity and mobility. And, and that's, so, you know, again, we can't think of this as free college. You know, what, what we're talking about is who's paying for college and who's paying for college. Sure, some wealthy people have a lot of money, but it's also in a lot of people who are under inflationary pressure right now who don't have the college education. So there's no such thing as free college. And, and you know, I, you look at this and you just think as a matter of sort of Justice and fairness. Um, I, I am completely of the view that resources of the government can and should be used, and you know, not infinite resources, but reasonable resources of the government can and should be used to help the least fortunate in our society and the most disadvantaged in our society. Um, that you know, uh, safety nets and and spending to increase opportunity in the most vulnerable communities. I'm for that not infinity money for that, but I'm for that as a general principle. What I'm not for is the allocation of vast resources to provide a sort of temporary economic boost to the most advantaged part of American society, college graduates. So uh, strongly against it's philosophically and politically. Yeah, just to put some, some numbers to it, there was a, a study out by Adam Looney at Brookings released in January of 2022, the Brookings Institution, a left-leaning think tank here in Washington. But the title of the study is Student Loan Forgiveness is Regressive Whether Measured by Income, Education, or Wealth. A uh, couple quick bullet points. Whether measured by income or wealth, student loan borrowers are better off than other Americans, and widespread loan forgiveness is regressive. Accounting correctly for both human capital and effect of subsidies in the student lending plans Almost a third of all student debt is owed by the wealthiest 20% of households and only 8% by the bottom 20%. Across the board, student loan forgiveness is regressive, measured by income, family affluence, educational attainment, and also wealth, just to underscore uh, that point. The, David, one quick question, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I will put you on the spot. Um, there are suggestions from Elizabeth Warren and others that, that, that President Biden could, by executive fiat, wave away, can't cancel this debt. Is, is, are they right? Can he do that? Um, I don't 
you know, if you're looking at the development of administrative law in the U.S., especially at the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, it is getting increasingly difficult for the chief executive of, of this country to just simply um, to just simply wave a magic wand and use whatever discretion that he has to essentially stop enforcing the law. Because this is what uh, a forgiveness would essentially be, would be, I'm not enforcing the payment obligation. Uh, think of the prosecutorial discretion on um, the prosecutorial discretion argument with DACA or DAPA, which is, I'm just not going to enforce this law uh, out of an exercise of administrative discretion. Court, the Supreme Court is looking with increasing side eye, increasing side eye at um, this idea that presidents can just sort of create new law and new rules by not enforcing the old law and the old rules. It feels, I mean, just not, not to get out my poli-sci textbook from freshman year in college, but it feels like a lot of like the rescission debate with Nixon, right? Where Nixon was just refused to spend certain money that the Congress had allotted, right? And the Supreme Court was like, yeah, you can't do that. Like Congress says you do this, you know, I, I'm not sure how it's philosophically any different maybe legally it's a thousand degrees different but refusing to collect money rather than refusing to spend money seems like in terms of the power of the president it's sort of a very similar thing um but maybe I'm we seem to be that. having a lot of of debates that are throwback to the 1970s right i mean this we stagflation do. inflation price controls something that we're talking about increasingly is increasingly only like on the left I um all that's really missing is bell bottoms and disco. I mean, yeah. bell bottoms. <laughs> come come back, come back and left uh, a few times. Stagflation and aggressive Russia. I mean, it was Soviet Union back then. Right. You know, sense of national despair and uncertainty. I mean, it's just you know, it's. I know history doesn't repeat itself, but man, you know, what was it? Twain who said it rhymes. It's it's rhyming loudly. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. So a bunch of theocons start a weird radical magazine about imposing <laughs> sort of theocracy. I mean, I can I can do this all day. I mean, <laughs> keep going. Uh, keep going. Crime goes through the yeah. roof. Um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, so, Batman becomes a popular culture icon. <laughs> although that's permanent. So I'm sorry. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So if, if this is all true and if there are all these parallels, the obvious question is, um, does, do these circumstances produce somebody like a Ronald Reagan on the right? Um, and, uh, I, th I think if you look at the state of the right today, uh, uh, certainly the elected right, similar problems afflict the right that afflict the left. The, yeah. the, the right is increasingly being driven by a, a loud 
vocal group uh, of the extremes, whether you want to call them the online right, whether you want to call them the sort of super MAGA or MAGA plus right, they are dictating a lot of what happens in the Republican Party. And I think evidence for that we saw in abundance this past week uh, with the difficulties that Kevin McCarthy has been having. Um, there were these recordings that uh, the authors of this book, This Will Not Pass, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, came out with, in effect, catching Kevin McCarthy in a bald-faced lie about whether he was going to advise Donald Trump to resign from office after January 6th. McCarthy put out a statement and said uh, that he had never even thought such things. He never suggested it on a phone call. The authors came forward with this audio, and clearly he had. Clearly, he had been caught in a lie. This is not the first time this has happened. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy has happened to him. Can I get a fact check on this just real quick? Because yeah, I've been I've been confused on this because um, there's so many different tapes, right? And I've I, I've also been in a fever dream for most of the last week. Um, is McCarthy's defense the is is the is the does it net out as being? Um, so he, he says. The time story is completely untrue. Obviously, it was <laughs> very largely true, but his fallback defense is that he didn't lie because he didn't. He never asked Trump to resign. He merely lied to his own conference <laughs> about saying he would ask Trump to resign. Is that it? Or because like you hear also this spin that I, Chris Christie did it. I've heard McCarthy do it that he was just running through a hypothetical and um, if Trump were to be impeached, uh, he would advise him to resign under those circumstances. Cause I just can't keep it straight. Like what the, the well, there's a reason that. you can't keep it straight. And it's not because you've been in a fever dream all week. It's because it's an incoherent defense. I mean, what happened was he got busted uh, lying. They produced the audio. He said he didn't say the things that he said, you know, he, he was busted. I think he's given versions of two different, responses. One of them is is the one that you describe. I was just walking through hypotheticals. I was trying to make Liz Cheney happy. You know, there's some version of, of that, that he was just sort of um, thinking out loud, in effect. Uh, that is not what the actual recording of the conversation suggests. And I think it's very clear. The second version that he apparently made in this uh, House Republican conference meeting this week was that, you know, this had been spliced and this was, this was you know, um, released in a way that was deceptive. There's no evidence to support that. Uh, but this, this leads directly to the question I wanted to ask both of you. So McCarthy shows up at this meeting of the House Republican Conference and by accounts from folks that we talked to in the room and uh, reports that we've seen elsewhere, gets something close to a standing ovation. What were they applauding? Any idea what they could have been applauding? I mean, he's just been busted in a big lie. He hasn't done anything worthy of applause, in, in my view, unless there was something big I missed. Is it the case that he gets this rousing ovation from not all, um, but apparently many members of the Republican conference just because he's now getting Donald Trump's back? 
<laughs> or because he's making an accusation that the New York Times is lying, even when the tapes suggest pretty clearly or make make clear that, that the New York Times is not lying? Well, is there any reporting that like he successfully sawed a woman in half or, you know, made a tiger disappear? <laughs> I mean, like, like that, it's possible that's what they were plotting. You know, I, I, I you know, I've been trying to figure this out. I, I think that part of it is simply that the, you know, one of the reasons why the House, conf- the GOP conference isn't matter at, at, at McCarthy is because they did the exact same thing he did. Yeah. Right. They were really outraged by it at first. And then they sort of, they clawed it all back and they sold off, you know, their integrity one little piece at a time. And they're not going to throw them under the bus for basically having the exact same position that the majority of the conference does. Um, if I had to guess, maybe David disagrees, is that what they're applauding is that he said, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that you guys are in the majority next year. And that's what most of them only care about anyway. And the rest is sort of screw it. Does that, does that make sense to you, David? I mean, certainly there's, that's a plausible explanation because they're doing the same thing that Kevin mm-hmm. McCarthy's doing at the same time. Like they know that he's not being honest. He didn't just make these arguments on one call uh, with leadership on January 10th, four days after the January 6th assault on the Capitol. This was an argument that he made repeatedly in private with the Republican conference and also in public yeah, from the House floor. So he can't very well say, you know, I didn't mean this. I didn't I didn't mean it when I said it. He said it a number of times. And you would think that at some point that diminished credibility would have people in his own conference saying, I know he's full of it. Well, part of the psychology of Trumpism is that if you get even a vocal critic to yield, you know, um, think about how vocal J.D. Vance was, right, back in that recent day. Um, and if they yield and they have, if they have Trump's back, you're not necessarily kicking them back off the bus. And so I think there's a, a part of this that is related to what Jonah said, that they are, uh, how different is McCarthy from them? Right. So how different is McCarthy? And then also at the same time, uh, they the psychology of Trumpism is once you're you've yielded and you're on the bus, um, the only person who can throw you back off it is Trump. And it's not going to be the mainstream media. It's not going to be New York Times. So this is often seen, for example, as a hit um, from the mainstream media, as a hit from The New York Times. And so therefore, you're going to back your guy who's being hit by the mainstream media. Unless, of course, Trump just goes ahead and throws you over the, you know, throws you over the side. And not everybody, not everybody's on board with him. I mean, obviously, we saw some, what was it, Matt Gates shots fired. Um, so, yep. you know, there's still going to be some of the most hardcore MAGA folks who are going to look at him and say, no. Um, but you know, I think Jonah's right. Number one, he's them. He's them. Uh, number two, once you're on the MAGA bus, only Trump can throw you off. And number three, you rally around your guy when the New York times comes after him. So, so I I guess my my view on this is that while it looks like there's a, a sort of circling of wagons, at least in the near term with Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and some others, uh, accepted, um, in their public statements. I think that this will have a longer term effect on Kevin McCarthy. You already had 
a group, a reasonably sizable group of uh, moderate Republicans and some movement conservatives who were frustrated that McCarthy had apparently made this deal with the House Freedom Caucus where they would continue to support him. He would elevate them, uh, amplify their arguments and give them, you know, a, a, a fair amount of say over how the conference acts in in certain areas. Um, I think th- those moderates f- for those moderates, this is a frustrating thing that he keeps stepping in it. Um, he's done it again and again and again. His public statements are are, um, are often scrutinized and, and left to be wanting and sometimes scrutinized and found to be just completely untrue. Uh, I, I spoke with a, a Republican who was asked to defend McCarthy on on these grounds this week and he sort of reluctantly did it, but he wasn't happy about it. Um, you know, was was pretty frustrated. I suspect that that there are more folks like that out there that predates this incident, but that that this incident sort of adds to their frustration. And then, as you say, you have the Matt Gateses who are, you know, basically making the argument that Kevin McCarthy, as much as he's you know kissed Donald Trump's ring, he's never really been a, a pure MAGA Trump supporter and. You know, their argument is these things he was saying to to Liz Cheney on these calls, these are his true beliefs. And he was not out there defending Donald Trump the way that people like Matt Gates mm-hmm. were. And I think that I think that has some some resonance on the the super Trump right to the point where, you know, you'd have to see who might emerge from from this if there is a, a battle for the speakership, if Republicans take the house in in november but i would bet that there will be i would bet that there will be it's also interesting i mean very interesting to to try to learn more about who may have leaked this audio um you had a pretty (laughs) categorical denial from liz cheney that she had anything to do with with leaking it um steve scalise also put out a statement that he didn't do it apparently uh elise stefanik uh said something this week i saw in a in a new york newspaper that she was denying having leaked the audio be interesting to see who's who's doing it because somebody was clearly interested in making kevin mccarthy look bad yeah well i mean the thing is i think liz cheney is believable uh because her denial or her her denial is believable because um it's not like uh, she hasn't put her money where her mouth is right. on, on sort of where her pol- political integrity is these days. Um, it would be really interesting to me if it was Elise Stefanik, just because it would be um, like I, I we talked about this last week. Uh, we had a peppy disagreement about whether or not it deserved to be in the not worth your time segment. But I. Um, uh I, I'm sticking by my long-term sort of half half wishful thinking, half prediction uh, that Kevin McCarthy is either um, sort of like Moses not going into the promised land, either never going to be speaker or um, is speaker for about five minutes because uh, it, it, it part of it part of it, there are two huge variables. One is the size of the majority that Republicans win yeah. in 2022. Um, if he's got margin for error, then he doesn't need the Matt Gateses and Jim Jordans and all those people. Um, and the other variable is uh, how capricious and punitive 
um, does Donald Trump want to be? And, uh, you know, neither of those things are the size of the majority is actually going to be easier to predict than the mercurial nature of, of Donald Trump's personality. But, um, uh, I could, I could see it very possibly being the ultimate comeuppance for, for McCarthy that he ultimately doesn't get to be speaker precisely because of all of this, you know, double dealing and dishonesty. I think, I think you're right. I would say there's a 50, 50 chance that he becomes speaker at this point. He has the, the one thing he really has going for him is he's done so much fundraising for these candidates and, uh, has helped them get elected and remain in Congress in such a way that so many feel indebted to him that I think they would support him just out of that sense of, of loyalty or gratitude for their help in remaining in Congress. And we've seen over the past several years that nothing is more important to many of these members of Congress than remaining members of Congress. Um, so that's amazing help. though when you, th- yeah, I, I agree, but it's, it's amazing when you think about it, Paul Ryan, who didn't want to be speaker, the reason why he was like thrust into the speaker role was because he was the one guy that all the Republicans thought had the sort of integrity and honesty for the job that they could at least take his, you know, trust him. And now it's sort of the reverse, um, which just sort of tells you something. It does. I mean, the, the, you know, one of the interesting things in just checking in with with Republican members of Congress over the past week since this since the tapes emerged, and it was clear that Kevin McCarthy was just busted in a really, really bad lie was the extent to which and, and this wasn't necessarily the people I was talking to, but them describing the response of the, the House Republican conference more broadly, you know, Kevin McCarthy's a bad liar, and this demonstrates once again that he's a bad liar. But it seems to me that the frustration with many members of the conference is less that he's a liar and more that he's bad at it. And mm-hmm. that seems to me backwards. Um, I would be pretty frustrated uh, that, that he's a liar. But as, as you both pointed out, um, many of them have made the same kind of compromises. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Our final topic by popular demand. Uh, what is not worth your time? <laughs> um, and I'm going to float this over Jonah's very strong objections. Jonah actually asked if we could do a dispatch live on Saturday night to do sort of a mystery science theater thing on the White House Correspondents' Dinner because he loves the White House Correspondents' Dinner so much. He's frustrated that he didn't have an invitation, but I I vetoed it. I said, we're not going to do that because it's really not worth our time. Why do you think it's worth our time, Jonah? I, 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 you know, I, I just don't understand your obsession with with uh, sitting on a throne of lies. Um <laughs> Uh, I despise the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I've been to many. I, probably not as many as Steve has been to. Um, I, I, I've been to, I don't know, five. I, I have to count. I don't know, four. Um, but, you know, Steve, who's 
probably at the Fox table up front for a long time. I was never on that at that table. And before that, probably at the, or after that weekly standards posh table paid for by, you know, Rupert or somebody. Um, uh, <laughs> it used to serve its purpose. Right. And then it got this utterly destroyed. Um, I'm not saying it was a great purpose, but it was fine. You know, like I, I don't like self-congratulatory journalists to begin with. You know, but there are some journalists doing some amazing things right now in like Ukraine and all that. Um, but because I think it's largely because of the Clintons, the Clintons tried to break the blood brain barrier between Washington and Hollywood. And it was the era of George magazine, which was a garbage magazine. And um, it became de rigueur to have celebrities show up at it. And yeah. then um, it just became just grotesque and then they started feeling guilty about how they weren't edgy and transgressive enough so they started inviting crappy not, i want to say crappy but they just started inviting um comedians who who you know it was in the john stewart era who took themselves way too seriously and the whole thing took itself way too seriously and and now i think it's a it's a mess so I, I, yeah david do you wish you were going Never gone, never ha don't have any desire to go. And it's not that I have any particular resentment for it. Um, fine, if you want to have sort of a, you know, nerd prom, isn't that what it was called for a while? Um, That's the AI annual dinner, which is awesome. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you want to have a, a White House correspondence version of a nerd prom, I don't care. Um it's it literally matters so little to me that I I have trouble sort of forming any kind of opinion about it at all. Go to the party, don't go to the party, broadcast it, don't broadcast it. I'm gonna be catching up on Utrid, son of Utrid. So um that that's where I am on it. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Last um, Kingdom. Last Kingdom. It's a great Netflix show that Jonah and I talked about a ton. Wow, gosh, well, maybe I'll do that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't. Um, thanks for joining us on this uh, edition of the Dispatch Podcast. Uh, if you can take the time, we would certainly appreciate a review. Uh, and otherwise, send your friends to thedispatch.com. Tell them to sign up as a free lister or take the full jump. Go all in and join us uh, as a member. Um, we will begin soon having more members-only podcasts and podcast segments that's coming soon so you won't want to miss that if you're not already a member. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino Ch -ch 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 -chumba. that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes Ch -ch 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 chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary forward, by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details